0: Coming up, we're going to talk about an impending postal stoppage. Is it a strike or a lockout? Uh, how that might affect you? And uh, it's when I looked into it, it's uh, surprising in many ways how it can affect you. Uh, we rely more on the post office than I think any one of us realizes these days, despite how little mail we might actually get to our door Also later on in the hour, we'll talk to the Artistic Director, Christopher Gaze, who will join us from Bard on the Beach, and we'll find out what's happening at Vanier Park. In the meantime, it's real estate. It's uh, the biggest news on the planet, at least here in the Metro Vancouver area. And as you've heard, uh, Premier Christy Clark uh, said on Wednesday that her government is ending the self-regulation of the real estate industry and that the province will hire a new superintendent of real estate who will take over the rulemaking authority currently held by the B.C. Real Estate Council. Back in February, the council created an independent advisory group to report on the conduct and practices in the real estate industry in B.C. and there's been great concern about predatory sales tactics and some agents that were jacking up commissions by deceiving their clients. The final report was released on Tuesday with 28 recommendations, including big fines for misconduct. It also suggested that a single agent should be prohibited from representing both buyers and sellers in a single transaction. And of course, there are other recommendations for the way council is made up and for a whistleblower hotline to be established. I spoke by phone to Ian Bailey, founder and managing broker at 1% Realtor or 1% Realty, that is. Uh, that's a company that does stretch mostly across Canada. And I suggested that after reading the report that a lot of the the findings were the kind of things that many, many people had been thinking about and perhaps even talking about for quite some time.
1: Yeah, I you know, I, th- I think the public, I- I- real estate's in the paper a lot and the news and everything else these days, and it's just... Under a lot of scrutiny, and uh, I think some of the things that went on perhaps weren't, uh, you know, they weren't penalized enough, if, if they were true, or it didn't happen quick enough, I'm not sure, but, uh, uh, you know, the media wants to hear, people want to hear that something's going on, and just have more trust in the industry. So, Interesting. Yeah,
0: large, it's probably good. Interesting comment that you make, that people want the sense, so a lot of this is perception, and my perception is, quite frankly, that the, 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 the provincial government had no choice. They had to do something. Uh, whether they had to go as far as disbanding the council, is that's probably up for debate. But I'm wondering if this isn't just a big smokescreen, getting the news to shift gears away from the affordability or the, the supply issue.
1: Well, it's true. This has nothing to do with affordability or anything else. My guess is the Real Estate Council, like... I'm going to say 99.9% of the industry is is afraid of them, right? I mean, they 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 can make your life hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that the government's doing it, maybe they'll ca- hopefully they catch a couple of guys if these fraudulent doings have been going on. Uh, you know, throw them out, get rid of their license, and find them. But uh, for the most part, council complaints and stuff are, are the guy made a mistake. He forgot to write something into a contract that he should have and. He's not trying to defraud anybody or anything like that, but uh, I think you're right. I think it's it's a bunch of bluster, and it it sounds good with an election coming up.
0: Well, that's just it, and and isn't that the point that there is an election coming up, that they want to be seen to be doing something? Uh, In the meantime, they're collecting huge amounts of money and revenues uh, pouring in from what has to be one of the growth industries in this province. So it it kind of begs the question, uh, as you said, the Real Estate Council was feared by most realtors you and I will both agree that most realtors, uh, they go to work in the morning and they do a pretty good job and they're pretty honest and they, they represent really well. So why disband an organization that oversees it because of a few bad apples?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. The realtors are getting blamed for a lot these days and, you know, perhaps some with some merit sometimes. But for the most part, as you say, guys are out doing their job. They're not trying to defraud people. They're trying to earn a living and feed their families and, uh, uh, you know, there's not that I'm aware of all that much fraud or dirty dealings going on. And the ones that do go on, they should, yeah, they should be drawn in quarters.
0: Um, I read this independent advisory group report. I know that you did as well. I thought on balance for 15 weeks that they had to work on it. Uh, it's a pretty good report. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I would say it is. It's uh, Yeah. yeah.
0: Before I let you go, I want to get to this this idea of, this crisis that we're supposedly in, this affordability issue and the supply issue. Now, you've got uh, kids that are in their 20s. Uh, what are you saying to them? They must be concerned about at, at some point wanting to get into the market.
1: <laughs> they want me to start smoking, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Take them
0: out. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's right. Uh, It's going to be a big – you know, our parents, you know, the baby boomers are inheriting their parents' money right now, and I I guess it's going to get passed on. But, yeah, you take a kid – yeah, my kids, your kids are about the same age. They go through university. Let's say they get a good job and they're making $125,000 a year or something, and their wife's making the same – they're still not entitled to buy much are they
0: no but do you agree with this idea and i've floated this before on this show that perhaps uh, the millennials their expectations are a bit high they they won't take that one bedroom or that single suite just to get into the market they won't uh, put on a slap of paint for uh you know a year or two just to to build some equity
1: no, I think you're absolutely – my daughter fully admits to that. She said, we're, we, yeah, we, we're spoiled. We don't want to do that. We don't want to get our hands dirty. They don't uh, – I was with a lawyer friend of mine yesterday, and I said, so, your kid's going into law? And he says, no, nah, they saw the hours I work, and <laughs> they'd just rather – you know, they'd rather have less. Live with a little less money, but they don't want to work 70-hour weeks.
0: Yeah, just don't take away their smartphone. No, no, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> you're still paying for that for your yeah, kids. no, no right? doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Ian Bailey, always a pleasure, always fun to talk to you. I appreciate your insight and uh, what you do at 1% Realty. So let's uh, uh, make a point of talking again soon.
1: Okay, thanks very much. Nice talking to you.
0: Ian Bailey is the founder and managing broker at 1% Realty, and he spoke to us by phone yesterday from Vancouver. We have more on this coming up, a different perspective, one from the East. The Big Smoke, otherwise known as Toronto. The GTA is also uh, in the midst of a very hot market, not too dissimilar from Vancouver. Although we don't hear the kind of noise from Toronto that we're hearing here in Vancouver, whether it's justified or not. Romana King is a journalist and is also a licensed realtor. And we'll get her take on what's happening here next on Vancouver Consumer. From Newstalk 980 CKNW. Canada Post workers will not be walking off the job, not until at least Wednesday. We'll have more on that in about 15 minutes from now, and what some people are doing to gearing up for the possibility of not having the Postal Service at their disposal. Meanwhile, Romana King is a senior editor and columnist at MoneySense, a consumer publication that focuses on financial news and investment solutions. She's also a licensed realtor, and I spoke to her by phone from Toronto yesterday morning. The Independent Advisory Group, as you know, released a report last week on the conduct and practices in the B.C. real estate industry. We've been talking about that this morning. And shortly thereafter, Premier Christy Clark announced that the Real Estate Council of B.C., the rulemaking authority for the real estate industry, would have its authority stripped. And I wanted to know uh, from Romana King her view on this, her perspective from Toronto, and if any of these developments came to her as a surprise.
2: Uh, I don't think it's surprising that the Premier's office and and the Premier, the government of, of BC, has decided to step in. I don't necessarily think it's a wise choice. I think it's more of a political choice. I'm not saying that things don't need to be fixed within self-regulation, but there's a lot of there's been a lot of industries where self-regulation has gone off the rails, and you've had situations that brought it back on track, and they work just fine. I think the problem I have is once you put a layer of government in, it actually becomes really hard to make you know changes. And in the last you know even six months, we've had, we've seen some pretty dramatic and, and effective changes. If you put a layer of government in there, what's going to happen with those? changes? They say it's to, to, uh, to protect the public, but I'd like to see more details as how how the premier thinks they're going to do a better job of it.
0: First thing that I thought of is, well, let's strip the dentists of the uh, of yeah. their right to to self-govern because we've had a couple of rogue dentists operating out of their basement. Should we strip the entire industry? Uh, we've had a couple of rogue doctors from time to time. That uh, that you know, I mean, when we're talking about thousands of people in any industry, you're always going to have a certain number, whatever that number is, that, you know, kind of, as you say, go off the rails.
2: And I, I mean, I'm thinking into in Ontario, we have an example where we had a number of doctors, like you said, that sort of went off the rails and, and instead of you know telling the Ontario Physicians uh, Association listen we're going to take all power away from you what they did is they started to make it become accountable to the public they set up a, an industry or they set up a website where you could actually check, check a physician find out if there's any you know complaints against this individual things that made it far more transparent about what they're doing i think that's what the regu- uh, the recommendations were from the advisory board was to start creating you know beefier more stringent rules and regulations and then and then actually you know have better things with teeth, better fines, better better stipulations, if you break you know ethics, and that's what we want to see. we want to see that, and we want to see more transparency I don't want to see another layer of government. I mean my worry is if you get another layer of government in there, we're just going to grind to a halt and I think about you know New York and rent control they can't get rid of rent control now, yeah. and the people that are benefiting from it are not the people that are struggling money wise they're the ones that are actually making quite a lot of money, and they still pay you know a rent control rent
0: yeah my last guest i don't think that you heard him but he said that uh, on balance the real estate council was doing a pretty good job uh in in his his estimation and he said that most realtors in this area actually feared them in in the sense that they wouldn't want to dare do anything to 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 incur their wrath yeah i
2: mean i mean that's the thing is that Whenever, whenever you're part of an industry and an association, you see the pros and the cons, and I think quite a few realtors, they were upset with some of the rogue realtors that were out there, some of the rogue real estate agents and rogue brokers, and they wanted stiffer penalties. They're now seeing that, but they didn't think that the whole system was, was kaput's. And I've actually talked to quite a few realtors out in B.C., real estate agents that have been practicing for 10, 20, 30 years. And one of the things that they helped me understand is you know, self regulations only been in, in power, in place for about 10, 10 years.
0: Put in by this put, government, by the way. Put,
2: put in by this government, exactly. And because it's only been 10 years, it's very fresh. It's very new. They're still getting their feet as to what works and what doesn't. And you've got. I think it's three in North America. It's Houston and Texas. You've got Toronto in, in Canada and you've got Vancouver. And all three of them are studied around the world as being sort of jewels in the crown. What they do things well. So now you're taking one of those jewels and you're saying, No, 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 we're gonna take it back, we're gonna do it like the government. Well, the government hasn't you know, there's lots of things that ways the government could have stepped in. Well before the council even stepped in, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. So the government itself is looking. I think they're looking to sort of make a political play, and that's my my personal per- perspective. But they're they're definitely making. They want to get out front and center as as if they're actually doing something about the housing uh, industry and and the, the problems within it right well, now. You
0: get a chance, and and you're connected well but you're still far enough on the fence to look in. We're always navel-gazing here, and it's hard to get perspective. What do you think of this idea of a vacant home tax?
2: Well, I think, I mean, I think this is the biggest struggle that Vancouver has, is they understand now, now there's even individuals and, and uh, professors that used to say, no, you know, foreign buyers are not a problem within the Vancouver market. Now they're doing an about face and saying, okay, you know what? We do have evidence. Foreign money, foreign buyers possibly because of that vacant homes this is an issue it's driving up prices and so you have to grapple with well how do we actually do this how do we actually deter people coming in and buying homes and driving up the prices uh, it's they're just going to leave those homes sitting vacant, and I, I think that's the biggest dilemma and the biggest outcry is if I want to buy something and I'm I'm a domestic, I'm, I live in Vancouver and I want to buy something, I want to live in it. I want to actually develop my community. But if you buy it and you leave the home vacant and there's big streets where they're vacant, what do you do?
0: Mm-hmm. Right? I'm thinking if I'm a foreign investor or, or any kind of a speculator and I've got a so-called empty home. What do I care if I pay a little more tax? I'm I'm really more interested in protecting my money. I'll keep the home empty empty. I'll pay a little bit more tax. It's really not going to put really that much more stock on the market.
2: It's funny that you mentioned that. That's actually an argument I, I put forward with Brexit and, and foreign money coming to Canada. I don't think the foreign money cares whether it's in Vancouver or St. John's, Newfoundland. They're a safe place to park it. Yeah. So having these taxes, whether it's a foreign uh, foreign buyers tax or luxury tax so you have a certain cap point and anything above that you're going to tax it even more or you know where do you draw the line with foreign money is it someone from Toronto buying into Vancouver that's foreign money or is it anyone overseas without a Canadian passport is that foreign money you know what how are we going to actually move the money around And I think the problem that the federal government the provincial government and municipal governments are all tackling is how do we actually attract this money without hurting our current population right federal government doesn't want to deter you know, foreign investors from coming in and pumping money into the Canadian system. If we know that, then we need to actually try and figure out a, or develop a plan where we're actually directing that money. And vacant home tax, maybe that's not the best way, but that's the best way the municipality has to try and deter the money from coming into certain segments of the market and going through other segments of the market. I think what we're trying to figure out is how to funnel the money. But we haven't quite figured out the best way to do that yet.
0: Is the same struggles that we're having here happening in toronto which is an equally hot market
2: well i mean that's that's the interesting part is we're looking to see you know is it the same and yes i mean there are very anecdotal very um you know man on the street realtors that know the industry and they say that you know there's certain buildings within the downtown core of toronto and 50 to 75 percent of them are, are investments with a portion of that being foreign buyers so you look at that and you think you know if 50 percent of this of this condominium you know with 65 floors and you know 100 units per floor, if there's that many units, 50% of them that are foreign buyers, how many of those are actually going to get that tax? Mm -hmm. I think the problem I have is that foreign buyers, you know, they're not, as you said, they're not necessarily buying um, to, to make an investment. They don't want to buy a condo to put a renter in there. They don't want to buy a condo for the appreciation value. A lot of these foreign buyers are coming in and parking their money because they just need something safe away from their government and their taxation authorities so they can get their money out of their their country and into another country that appears safe. Anything taxed may deter and may not. If. If you've got a foreign national that's in a country where, you know, they don't want to keep their children and keep their money, and we've seen this in Vancouver, they're going to take their wife or their husband and take their children and park them in a very expensive home in Vancouver. That's not a foreign, foreign property. They're not going to get taxed, and yet they still drive the prices up. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a really touchy subject. It's, and you're right, it really has to boil down to that, that thesis of what are we actually trying to do with this tax? Are we trying to deter people from having vacant homes? And how is that going to impact, say, Canadian residents who get a temporary posting in in Britain for their job? Now they're going to be taxed. How is this going to actually be applied?
0: I got a, a quick question for you, only 10 seconds to answer, which isn't fair. But do you think with this intervention that we saw last week that it might just slow things a little bit?
2: Oh, you know what? I think people are going to, if they're pushed to buy right now, I think they're going to be running in. And I think if you slow the market, all the domestic buyers, the people that have been sitting on the edge and pushed out are going to rush in. So I think there's going to be some heat in this market for some time still.
0: Appreciate your time. I hope we can get you back again. Thank you, Ian. Romana King, a senior editor and columnist at MoneySense, and a licensed realtor in Toronto. I spoke to her by phone yesterday on Vancouver Real Estate Today. Interesting to see what happens. I'll be interesting to, interested, that is, to see what happens with the market. Will there be any kind of slowdown? I doubt that any of the announcements of last week will have an effect on the market itself. It may clean up some of the, the agents that are working in the market But uh, things, as uh, Romana just said, if uh, people want to buy, they're going to buy now and and the market will continue to be hot. There will have to be more action from the government, more intervention before anything will slow anything down. And that might come, but when, we don't know. Another quick item that is related, uh, just because it is summertime, it's a long weekend, people are going away. Perhaps you're thinking about your summer holiday. Better Business Bureau uh, sent this along and asked me if I would pass some of these ideas to you because if you're thinking about going away there are some things that they would like you to think about in terms of keeping your place safe and one of the things that they suggest you don't do and it's common sense but so many of us like to show what we're doing on social media so if you're going away out of town it's probably best that you don't post or broadcast it as it were on social media don't broadcast that you're going away for three days or a week or two weeks you might as well put up a sign and say hey come help yourself I'm away uh, let let your friends help out while you're away especially if you have pets or uh, if you need some house sitting for them it's uh, good to have them come to you rather than have the pet go to them if you can do that uh, the people see that the mail the papers have been picked up uh, turning lights off and on randomly as you normally would that's also good because people who are casing your place uh, they know what to look for and on that whole idea of lights uh, it's best to put them on a timer because if you leave lights on and they're static, people will notice that again. They're, they're casing your place and they look for those kinds of, of signs. Uh, Better Business Bureau off, also offers that uh, leaving a spare key out is uh, another invitation. Locking up your doors and windows. These are obvious things that we don't always think about when we're rushing out the door trying to get away on our holiday. Especially, I find, and maybe you agree, when you're taking a road trip. You just want to get in and go. And uh, when you leave your place, leaving the blinds and the curtains closed, that's another. Another big red flag for any crooks that want to come around. So make sure that you've got all of your heirlooms and your valuables and your jewelry locked up, and better yet, in a safety deposit box. Home security, always a good idea. And the Better Business Bureau also offers that unplugging your appliances and electronic devices is a good way to prevent any power surges should that happen in your neighborhood. Coming up next, how are we preparing for a possible stoppage in Canada Post Service. That's next on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. Canada Post workers will not be walking off the job until at least Wednesday. That's when 50,000 Canada Post workers will be in a position to walk off the job. Uh, Joining me in studio is Estefania Duran, a CKNW reporter. It, there's some confusion, uh, but just before we get into the sort of the, the minutia of what's going on here, is this a threat of a walkout or a threat of a lockout? So is it a strike or a lockout?
3: Yes, well, it seems like it is a threat to walk off the job and the only thing that's it's it's a bit confusing because they had a week Canada Post presented them with an offer and CUPW which is the union representing Canadian Canadian postal workers had a week to go over that that review now i spoke to John Hamilton from Canada Post and he's saying that they offered several new things with that deal that they thought was fair enough but last minute, on the last day that the union had to accept that deal, they said no. So this was Friday evening. Okay. And a lot of people were confused because they thought that, that the next day, that's when the July 2nd, that's when they would want to walk off the job. But apparently, they still have 72 more hours before they decide to do that. So that's why there's been a bit of confusion everywhere. So
0: have have they actually served, is that 72 hours is that official notice that's been served?
3: No. And that's the thing, In in order for them to be able to do that exactly they have to serve an official notice so they cannot do anything before 72 hours after they've served that notice. And everybody thought that they were going to serve it Friday, but instead they, they served a counter-offer to Canada Post.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, any reaction so far to that counter-offer from Canada Post?
3: Yeah, well I spoke to John Hamilton from Canada Post and he could not believe it. He said he was very disappointed. Apparently it would amount to $1 billion in wow. cost for the Canada Post. And what he was saying was uh, he thought that some of the things were, there was no way that they could give that to the workers. One of the main things that they've been going over is the pension plan. Right. And so what Canada Post offered was let's keep the pension plan as it is for current workers, but any new workers coming in would get the new pension plan. And apparently that would help them a lot with the budget. And the Canada Post Union said no. We want everybody to have the same equal rights and same patient plan that for some of the workers that have been there for thirty years. It doesn't matter if you're new or if you're old, we want everybody everybody to have the same and apparently that's not feasible at all for Canada Post.
0: And do you think uh, just having watched this story develop in 2016, do you think anybody cares whether there's letters to the door or not? I mean, obviously there's a number of seniors that still rely on the postal service that they collect their bills that way. Most of us are do most of our what, our, what we would call traditional letters or mail or bills uh, all online now. So, is there going to be uh, are we going to see marches in the streets if the if the postal service goes down?
3: Well, I think that the one thing that's vital now is that a lot of people are doing online shopping. So that involves a lot of parcels. And I think that's where Canada Post is starting to gain a new market. Not necessarily the letters, but then they're delivering parcels. And what John Hamilton was explaining to me was that they're in a competitive market. There's private international companies out there delivering parcels. So if they were to increase the price for consumers, then it would go even worse because apparently... From 2006 till now, they're delivering 1.6 billion few letters than they were 10 years ago. Right. So there's definitely a difference. They're definitely having to adjust, but I think if people stop uh, receiving their parcels or the few letters that they do, property taxes are due soon. So if that affects if they do, if they get them in time or not, then we can definitely see some reaction.
0: And you are still responsible to make sure your property tax and your other bills are paid on time. CKNW reporter Estefania Duran, thank you for that. Uh, I wanna bring in Jeff Long, who's the manager um, Progressive Messenger, a local courier company, Uh, what does it really mean if if the post office shuts down?
4: I think uh, the average uh, consumer um, won't really feel it, but the the biggest impact will be on small businesses who rely on sending out invoices and and collecting their money uh, by checks through the mail.
0: Now, as a company uh, who's in the business of delivering packages, obviously you're, you're a competitor with Canada Post, I would think. So maybe as a courier company, you'd be just as happy to see them go.
4: Well, our, our business specializes in local lower mainland deliveries, so we compete in that market, but not uh, you know necessarily on an international or worldwide uh, marketplace. So you know, people that uh, have deliveries staying within the lower mainland certainly have lots of options.
0: And what are some of those options?
4: Well, career companies uh, such as ourselves, um there's um, some individuals that are offering uh, delivery service. Uh, what the consumers and, and small businesses need to be careful about is to make sure that the companies, you know if the, if they're going to turn to an alternative company that they're you know they're fully insured so that um, if they're doing deliveries on their behalf, that if something goes wrong, that uh, they have you know a method of recovery. Um, so there, there's lots of like I say, individuals and other companies that are providing the service. The key is to make sure you're dealing with somebody, um, who's reliable. Our company, uh, Progressive Messenger has been around for 30 years and we're fully insured. And uh, so we're a good alternative to a local, uh, lower mainland delivery.
0: What do you do, if anything, to prepare for, uh, a possible shutdown at Canada Post? Did you hire more drivers, get more vehicles on the road, or is it just business as usual and you, you pick up the slack?
4: Well, as a, I think for us as an established uh, company in the lower mainland uh, for over 30 years, we have a very large fleet of, of vehicles ranging in size from uh, cars right up to uh, cube trucks. So we're well prepared for um, any um, you know influx of additional business.
0: Will the big winners be some of the, the major brands like FedEx or UPS? Or Are they the ones that, that stand to gain the most from something like this? I think it's a Probably a,
4: a combination of companies like that and, and companies uh, like ourselves, I think that uh, the online business um, that um, Canada post is is now trying to compete in in terms of delivering parcels, um, certainly their competitors are going to pick up the business. And I think that the, the challenge for Canada Post is if there is a work stoppage of any kind is that they may you know permanently lose business to some of these other companies. I, again, for a company like ourselves that uh, delivers locally in the, in the in the Lower Mainland, we're going to pick up a number of those customers as well.
0: Sure. So Canada Post now makes money delivering parcels. And it, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, before I get to that point, I wanted to ask, at what point over the past 30 years, and now obviously, we're not going to go back 30 years, but it's in recent memory that uh, courier companies such as yours were all but dead. And then because uh, everybody wrote it off. But Then there was this thing called the internet and shopping online came about. And was that not the big boost, the shot in the arm that that your industry was looking for?
4: Um, I think that as well as, um, you know, changing the business model to a small package as opposed to to documents. Um, For example, uh, we do a lot of deliveries of construction materials to construction sites, you know, simply things that you can't email. Uh, They're actually a hard product that has to be uh, delivered the online industry certainly, um, certainly has helped as well.
0: Right. So you're all prepared to deal with any kind of, uh, an uptake that, that will happen. Should we find out Wednesday that the, the service at Canada post is, uh, is going to either be in a strike or a lockup position. I can't seem to get a handle on which is which, um, what, what sort of a, an increase in business would you expect? Would it would be 10%, a hundred percent. What, what kind of an increase?
4: I, I would expect somewhere in the neighborhood of um, probably thirty to forty percent uh, would be an increase. Uh, we will be prepared with a, um, a small uh, for a document delivery service if, if that's required. And of course, we'll you know we'll continue with our small small to large package um, delivery because of uh, you know having a large fleet covering um, the whole lower mainland. We're able to um, adapt to that kind of an increase. We have the technology in place as well. So I think that uh, we're we're geared up. We're ready um, should it happen.
0: And uh, is this something (laughs) – are you crossing your fingers or what?
4: Well, you know, it's it's a bit of a mixed blessing because, um, you know, obviously – with a sudden increase of, of, of business like that, there's you know there's some challenges that that will come with that, but um, obviously you know we welcome the extra business, but um, we, we we're also cognizant of the fact that there will be challenges.
0: Jeff Long is the manager of Progressive Messenger, uh, Vancouver-based courier service uh, that's been in business for 30 years. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And uh, we'll take a quick break on Vancouver Consumer. I think uh, most people, as I mentioned uh, off the top, uh, seniors, it seems, that are still getting their bills in the mail. Most people today get most of their mail online. There are still some documents, still some some things that come in the mail that we rely on Canada Post. For me personally, it's more about getting the packages. Uh, I get so little mail these days except for flyers. And if there's a new pizza joint that opens in the neighborhood, I want to know about it. But if I don't, I'll find out another way. We're going to hit Bard on the Beach. We're heading to Vanier Park next with Christopher Gaze on Vancouver Consumer from Newstalk 980 CKNW. Christopher Gaze is best known as the founding artistic director of Bard on the Beach Shakespeare Festival He hosts the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra's ever-popular Tea and Trumpet Series and has hosted their annual traditional Christmas concert for over 20 years. His many honours include Canada's Meritorious Service Medal, honorary doctorates from UBC and SFU, the Mayor's Arts Award for Theatre and the Order of British Columbia. Last summer, he directed the world premiere of C.C. Humphrey's Shakespeare's Rebel, part of Bard's 26th season. Christopher Gaze plays a leading role in British Columbia as an advocate for the arts in general, and his passionate dedication to Bart on the Beach has fueled its growth in one of the largest professional theater companies in Canada, drawing more than a million and a half patrons since its inception, 90,000 people just last year alone. Um, that's that's pretty incredible record. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
5: I'm delighted, delighted
0: well twenty seven years most people would have said uh, it's hey it's it's time to move on <laughs> what keeps you what keeps you going i mean it's obvious that you're passionate about what you do you're so well spoken and so dedicated but what keeps you going for for all this time?
5: I think it's just the it's the whole notion uh that Barn on the beach is a wonderful experience, and that i i i Frankly, with all my colleagues and everyone involved, and I just wanted to share it. It's a, it's a sort of great, good news story uh, that I rejoice in. And um, I just can't put it down, my dear. I can't put it down.
0: One of the things about Shakespeare is, for an actor, I, I have often wondered this. Is it, is it true that if you can do Shakespeare well, then everything else is a piece of cake?
1: I
5: think that's uh, pretty accurate, myself. Uh, it's, um, it is a skill. You have to work hard at it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't come naturally uh, because it's, um, it's written over 400 years ago, and you have to be able to figure out how to wrap your mouth and your mind around the text.
0: Mm-hmm. And
5: if you can do that, you can pretty much do anything, I think.
0: Yeah, is it is it uh, 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 the type of theater that um, where many people can't do Shakespeare? Maybe they they're okay for a stage play here or even some motion picture there, but they just can't grapple with Shakespeare.
5: Yes, I think that is absolutely true. Uh, everyone can have a good go at it, but uh, like most things in life, uh, it's only a few who manage to solve. Uh, the um, the challenge of it, the professionalism of it, the knowledge of it, the expertise, the hard work. And if you want it, and you're good enough, you have enough talent, then uh, things are going to go well for you.
0: I'm told that uh, with Shakespeare, it's not just the words, although obviously that is so important. It's the the interpretation or the the adaptation of those words but it's also the staging of Shakespeare that is still to this day so unique. Can you talk a little bit about that and the way that uh, in those days of course it, for him it was the the sun and the shadows and those kinds of things. How do you, how do you make that work in 2016?
5: Well, of course as you know we have this unique venue at Bath and What we've been able to do over the years didn't happen immediately, but uh, we've become more sophisticated as our audience has become more sophisticated. uh, And as we have built it, uh, made enough money to build these wonderful theaters, um, we're able to do some fairly extraordinary things, uh, just like Shakespeare used to, frankly, 400 years ago. The thing that we share with Shakespeare Uh, Or Shakespeare's time, I should say, is that our theaters uh, are open, but they're open to the view behind, not the weather above. Right. And uh, what we've been. So we we have the same challenges from uh, dropping things onto the stage, you know, uh, uh, various backdrops and this and that Mm -hmm. uh, that you can do in an environmentally controlled theater with a fly gallery. And so we can't do all that, uh, but we can do some pretty interesting things, uh, moving set pieces around. And you'll see that, for instance, in our production of Romeo and Juliet this year. It's uh, just extraordinary. I think what our designers, in this instance, Pam Johnson's been able to create. But you need to be able to, to do Shakespeare well, I find, is to find a context for your production. Mm Mm-hmm. You can put on traditional Shakespeare, and then that's what it is. And we do that Uh, generally. There's a show a year that uh, is pretty much straight up. But then our other productions are generally a take on that. They need to be clear. Uh, Don't get too clever. Don't obscure the text. Don't do something so clever that nobody understands what you're doing. Uh, And by and large, we have enough experience after all these years to to finesse this pretty well.
0: I wonder if you ever think about this. If Shakespeare were alive today and he were to come to Vanier Park to see Bart on the beach, uh, what would he think of your productions?
5: I think uh, he'd want to become the next artistic director.
0: (laughs) You'd be out of a job.
5: I know, but I'd give it over to Shakespeare I'd be his assistant or something or bring him coffee. Um
0: the reason I'm the reason I'm asking you this is because uh, you you touched upon this uh, the idea of of making the to put your spin on it if I can put it that way without being disrespectful and so many uh, productions of Shakespeare's uh, material has been done where where perhaps it's been a little sly a little cheeky or a little off color and it hasn't really been true to what the Bard might have wanted.
5: Mm hmm. Uh, Well, it's again, it's all about the context. And we've found some I I don't I don't use the word concept so much as context. Mm -hmm. If you can uh, drop your idea inside uh, some immaculate context, then um, you can make the play shine afresh and um, and make it appeal to new audiences, make it relevant. Uh, and, um, and so I think uh, Shakespeare would like that. I mean, he was putting on the plays in, the, uh, in a contemporary way because they were in his time. Um, but uh, now we need to uh, change things up um, and, uh, be, and we are deeply respectful, deeply respectful to the text. It's all about the text. Mm-hmm. If you can't say that well, figure it out, tell the story well, then you're going to get lost and you'll lose your audience.
0: How do you keep, not, yep. but, but how do you keep something like, uh, and I, I say this respectfully because I am interested, in, and Romeo and Juliet is something that most of us are, are quite familiar with this uh, production, uh, not, not your production at, at, at Vanier, uh, Bart on the Beach, but we know the story. How do you yep. keep it fresh? How do you keep people coming back to see the same, essentially the same story over and over again?
5: got a few things in it that I think make people make people sit up and think that are a little different. I I just think what we have done is to cast two extraordinary young actors as Romeo and Juliet. It's a very hard thing just because you're putting on. I say this about all our plays, all our productions, just because you're doing Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Othello, whatever it is, uh, doesn't mean it's going to be any good. Uh, you've got to come up with a good idea, and you've got to cast it well. Mm-hmm. Cast it well, and about sixty percent of your work is done. And we have these marvelous young actors, uh, Haley Gillis and uh, Andrew Chown, who play Romeo and Juliet. And they tell the story afresh. Mm-hmm. They, when when he says, "But soft, what light through yonder window breaks?" It is the East and Juliet as the Sun. If you can find someone who can say that, you know, most often uh, you find, uh, or I've had experience of this over the decades, um, and when I go to see Romeo and Juliet, they're such difficult parts. It's very hard to find young people who can be strong enough uh, and clear enough in their minds, smart enough to... uh, finesse that text and these these young people are just exceptional
0: well we'll look forward to seeing them i wanted to touch a little bit upon uh, the merry wives of windsor i have to tell you straight up that's the one that i'm looking forward to seeing this summer because um there's it's some pretty rich laughter that comes from that one
5: yes um it's um it's uh, we the con the context of this production is uh, Merry Wives of Windsor, Ontario, 1968. <laughs> yeah, it's big fun. And, uh, and there's Shakespeare's brilliant invention, full stuff, uh, trying to woo these uh, uh, wealthy wives of Windsor. And all the he tries three times, and of course he's spoiled every time. But nevertheless, the fun in between is marvelous. And what the brilliant director, John O'Reilly, has done is added uh, gorgeous music, and gosh, I don't know, eight to ten of these actors play musical instruments in the show. They play their part, and then suddenly they end up on the bass or the cello or the guitar or something, piano, and um, and the wonderful music of uh, that you may remember. These boots are made for walking. Stand by your man, sure. crazy, and so forth. We all these wonderful numbers are in the show.
0: Excellent. And that's what you when you talk about context. uh, That that's a great example. I want to mention quickly, be because our time is uh, rapidly evaporating here. Uh, we won 't go through the details, but I do want to mention for anybody who 's interested in Bard on the beach at Vanier Park that to, to look online for a number of special events, which include the the bar, uh, bar barbecue and fireworks, uh, special family nights, uh, an opportunity to to go out with your family and have a really special time salon series the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra uh, a number of things that uh, that go on throughout this uh, the program, aside from the feature. Uh, on stage as well, and uh, I would would really highly recommend anybody who's interested in seeing Bard on the Beach of Vanier Park that they get out and take advantage. Uh, What's the one thing that you want to leave our listeners with in order to woo them into the world of Shakespeare?
5: Take a chance. If you've never done it before, uh, get over any bad experience you've had or any thought that you're not going to understand or enjoy it. Just come. Come. Give yourself a chance, and uh, and I think you may fall in love with it, like uh, a lot of other people have over the years.
0: Well said. It can truly take you away, and that's the, the, the great thing about theatre and the great thing about Shakespeare.
5: It is indeed.
0: Thank it you so indeed. much for your time. Christopher Gay's, uh artistic director and a real gem in, in our community, and I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
5: You too. Have a wonderful
0: day. All the best to you. Uh, Yeah, it's the 27th season for Bard on the Beach. Uh, This is a huge production and something not to be missed, not only by yourself, but your family. And there are, as I say, a number of family days and events that you can take part in. Uh, hit them up online. And that's all the time we have today for Vancouver Consumer. My name is Ian Power. I want to thank Mike Given, our technical producer. Stay with us. Shane Foxman is coming up. It's CKNW Weekend. Next on News Talk 980 CKNW.